0: This is Client Conversations, a podcast from Charles Russell Speechleys.
1: Hello, and welcome to Client Conversations. My name is Simon Ridpath. I'm the managing partner at Charles Russell Speechleys, and I'm joined by Bart Peerless, our senior partner and one of the country's preeminent private client specialists. In each episode, we're going to be bringing you an informative and hopefully entertaining look at the world of private capital, uh, discussing current trends and issues we see and are tackling, but also bringing you the views of clients uh, through discussions, stories, and conversation with a special client guest. Today is a bit different, primarily because our guest isn't a client, but he is someone whose business and people we work closely with, and who has 30 years experience in consulting and entrepreneurship. Having co-founded two successful professional service businesses since 1990, he will have much to share with us and more on him later. So Bart, at a time where we've seen a global pandemic drive some industries, opportunities and concerns, we have veered into a period where some of the more traditional economic headwinds, such as inflation, are now affecting markets, investor sentiment and strategies. How are you seeing that play out with clients and their approach to opportunities?
0: I think at the moment, one's got to distinguish between the short-term and the long-term. I mean, there's so much short-term noise going on. Um, And I think in the short-term, private clients, like probably most of the rest of us, are focused on things like interest rate movements, like inflation, They're looking at how those are going to affect their businesses or their property portfolios, and they're wanting to make sure that they're well-positioned to to face what everyone sees as likely to be quite severe headwinds as we go into the next few months. And I think, you know, so people are in in the stage of focusing hard on getting their ships in order um, and therefore looking at the longer-term position for those clients is slightly distracting at the moment. But the the longer-term view is clearly that private wealth is growing very fast around the world. That feeds into what we're calling private capital. That means that private investment, whether that's direct investment through vehicles such as corporates or partnerships, is growing very quickly, and we still see a lot of that coming into the UK. Um, but the focus for now is some of those immediate headwinds, I think, some
1: And I think you, you mentioned long-term, and I guess that's that's at the very essence of what we mean by private capital, and that's the big distinction with more traditional Institutional finance.
0: Yes, that's right. So I think you know how private capital tends to think over much longer time scales. um, They're not required to produce returns to third-party shareholders after six, twelve, or or whatever period it is, and report on that basis. So it tends to be long-term money, um, and that is that is finding its way, or has always found its way, into property traditionally as an asset class, but increasingly what is what is private. Other private capital forms of investment, private equity is some of that, of course. Um, and, and the way that money is invested is often very different from the public markets.
1: And, and I guess it's a true test of client resilience at the moment, because it feels like blow after blow. As global citizens, there's political pressures, there's conflict, unfortunately. But are you uh, surprised, reassured, comforted by the fact that clients are
0: still prepared to invest and take risk? Yes, and they take a long-term view. Risk is a different um, question if you're taking a view over a generation or longer, isn't it? So I think um, you know, for clients that are still investing into the UK, they are taking a very long-term view of the stability of the UK. Um, they might see the present weakness of sterling as an opportunity, not something to worry about. Um, and uh, they still uh, weight incredibly heavily the value of the rule of law that you know, if they buy an asset here, when they come to sell it 10, 20, 30 years down the line, it will still be theirs to sell and, and won't it be taken by somebody or turn out to be something they didn't appreciate or understand. So, I think private capital money is long-term money, um, and it goes towards assets that those clients consider have long-term value. Um, and because they can take that long-term view, they are driven by very different motivations to more traditional investors.
1: And of course, we, we've spent a lot of time, not only as a business, but also um, in the UK in particular, talking about agility, um, generally in workplace environments. But obviously, when you talk about private capital, the ability to um, invest uh, in a quick turnaround time is one of the great strengths, I guess, and, and makes it unpredictable for you as an advisor in that space.
0: Yes. I mean, I think, um, you know, the, the, the private capital money chasing different sorts of asset classes, there's a, there's a shortage of many of them. I mean, it's well known that there's a shortage of certain types of residential property in this country. I suppose that's not what I'm talking about. But actually, other investment opportunities can be quite hard to come by. So, um, and when you look at some of the statistics doing the rounds, the proposal that private capital will increase from, Ten trillion to thirty trillion over the next ten years or so, um, you know that requires the investment opportunities to be there for that money to be invested. So it's you know it's quite a hot market from that point of view, and dynamics are changing quite quickly.
1: Well, they're mind-boggling numbers. I'm not sure I could write down what thirty trillion US dollars would look like. I certainly couldn't imagine how big a room you'd need to house it in in currency terms. But um, we're obviously going to be speaking to. Um, a successful entrepreneur today. Um, you've dealt with many in your career. Are there common characteristics of a successful entrepreneur?
0: That's most unfair in the presence <laughs> of a successful entrepreneur who is now looking at me across the room. Um, I, I'm sure there are, and um, uh, I think, um, I mean, clearly the ability to to be able to identify a goal um, and work consistently towards that goal is incredibly important. I think the ability to um, make decisions um, quickly, based on sound judgment, to get to your objective is incredibly important. Um, I think often being a good judge of people, so that when you build a business around you, you surround yourself with capable people, is crucial. Um, and an ability to work hard. I mean, we'll see what our guest has to say in a moment. But I, you know, all those things are consistent themes I see amongst entrepreneurs. Um, and you know, there are very few exceptions to those. There are very few lucky entrepreneurs, let's put it that way, who, who find themselves fortunate um, and, and, and arrive at huge success without a lot of hard work. I just don't think that sort of person really exists. But yes, yeah, so dynamism, certainly, um, good idea, the ability, you think you have a good idea, but realize it needs to change a bit to change quickly, you know, reacting quickly, all the things that you would probably expect, in short.
1: Well, I think that's probably a nice introduction. I'll stop tantalizing and teasing everyone now and actually introduce you to our guest. Um, Our guest today is Neil Hedges, chairman of the communications consultancy, Headland. For more than 30 years, Neil has consulted and advised across all sectors and practice areas. Before co-founding Headland in 2012, he was the CEO and chairman of Fishburn Hedges the agency he co-founded in 1990, which became one of the most successful communications agencies over the
2: past 20 years. Welcome, Neil. Well, thank you for having me.
1: So perhaps you could give our listeners a quick overview of who you are, even though I've just introduced you, Mm. um, and what you do for those that don't already know.
2: Yes, okay. Well, my sort of background... It, I, I mean, I, as you say, I've been in consultancy all my life, so I've never actually had the experience of working on the other side, which you know, arguably is, uh, is a, uh, a gap in my, in my experience. Um, I, just very briefly, in terms of career, I, I, as a, I started off as a, as a graduate trainee in an advertising agency, and I, I really didn't like it at all. And um, I don't know if any of you have um, um, watched Mad Men but um, I, I went in as, as, a, as, as a suit, which is you know, very much the, the middle person who uh, um, acts in between the client and the, uh, the creative. And I had no idea that it was, was that. I thought you actually did the work as well. And of course, one doesn't. I mean, basically you're given the creative work and you go and sell it. And I found that very early on very frustrating. And that's why I moved uh, very early on into um, public relations because in the public relations arena, um, yes you have the the client contact but you also do the stuff and uh, and I found that um, more fulfilling and um, and uh, I, I sort of learned my art at a, um, an agency called Valon Pollen which was an amazing place and I very lucky actually that I joined it right at the beginning so I sort of right from a very early age got that um, experience of building a business um, they sent me to Insead for quite a period, which was very good and that, but I have to say, and it, maybe it sounds rather disloyal, sort of actually encouraged my desire to um, to do it myself. And uh, so that triggered um, starting off uh, Fisherman Hedges when I was really quite young and uh, and then um, selling that business and then subsequently um, co-founding Headland, so that, which is where we are today. Well, you've certainly painted a very
1: visual image comparing it to Mad Men. So, I mean, I dare not ask whether it's a true depiction of life, or it's much more exciting in real life.
2: It's well, I mean, I, I mean, I, if you talk to advertising people of that period, I mean, they would say it was worse than that, or better, however you uh, you, you you see it. I mean, it uh, it was it was that golden period of advertising. Budgets were huge. Adverti- I mean, it's interesting because advertising agencies in that period absolutely controlled the brand and so they controlled the budgets. And this is obviously pre-social um, uh, media, but I mean, just everything has changed in that respect. And, uh, and of course, you know, where we have benefit in, in terms of the public relations arena is that um, it's become much more a central part of that. If you, if you watch the whole of Mad Men, there's only one reference to public relations in the whole um, um, series, and there it's in quite a disparaging fashion. So I think that tells you of a different age.
1: Different age, indeed, and and having asked Bart
2: perhaps unfairly the
1: question around successful entrepreneurs, do you recognise qualities in yourself that he
2: described? Well, I mean, I think the I, first of all, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not sure I am an entrepreneur. I, I mean, the actual definition of that, um, I don't know what it is, but I, you know, I, I've, I've created or helped create two companies, so I don't know whether that sort of um, qualifies for it, but. Um, uh, yes, I think that's right. I think um, we can come on to it, but I think certainly when I created uh, Fishbone Hedges, I mean, I, I was way more obsessive um, than I think um, being a part of it second time round. And, and again, we can look back on this, but I think it, you know, um, yes, it arguably was it that that helped make a success? It probably was, but. Um, you know, I think getting that balance right between work and family life and what have you um, is, you know, particularly when you're young, it's always a challenge.
1: Yeah. So Headland is the second business you founded. Um, can you talk about your experience contrasting the two? So you've already mm. mentioned perhaps slightly less obsessive second time round. Didn't feel the same need to prove yourself a second time over. More yes. confident that you knew what worked and what didn't.
2: Yes. For sure. Um, the I mean the I mean it, it is really if, if one can create subsequent businesses, um, it, it's I think it's it's incredibly valuable because, you know, the second or probably the third time around there's there's so much that, you know, one has learned from the first experience. And I mean fishman Hedges was an amazing place, but there were certain things that we didn't quite get right. And it, I think it would have been far more difficult to um, to make to, to make those things happen, than actually to to start again. I mean, the the kind of the the cynic in me thinks that it, that that actually service services businesses ought to have a a sunset clause built into them, you know, that says after twenty or thirty years, um, you know, that's it. And you start again. I know no, that, that would
1: certainly be radical. I'm not sure I could get that passed no. down. I've got a
0: lovely client who talks about businesses getting cholesterol, which is what you know that right. as they get older, everything just moves more and more slowly. Which I think is what you're saying. Exactly. You
2: know, yeah. 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 So yeah. So I think the ask question is that I mean I, I I think it's a pity that that more entrepreneurs, or whatever you want to call them, you know, don't do it um, more than once because I think you know one learns so much from the first experience.
1: Well, before we let you go today, we and we won't tell Headland, but obviously you can tell us what the third iteration is gonna look
2: like. Yeah, I I think I probably have um, done it. I mean the, it was interesting. So when 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 we started Headland, I mean the you know, one could have started something completely from scratch, but what what, what I was interested in was was building on something that was extant, but you know, it was never perhaps gonna grow. And so our proposition was to to build on that. And uh, I mean, it was the right decision. Although if we got it wrong, I would have felt pretty bad about that. Um, but it, you know, I mean, the other the other issue about creating something new. I mean, I, I, you know, our business is all about you know people and culture and everything else. And you know, one hears of uh, of new businesses in our in- industry being created um, during the pandemic, where you know none of the people have actually met one another. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just find that extraordinary. You know, how how can you build a culture? Um, uh, remotely,
1: oh, absolutely, and I think it's a challenge for every people-based business, and yeah. and, and that's the feedback certainly from um, clients, and something we recognise ourselves. I think part of that challenge in terms of uh, the hidden glue yeah. in a business is is that time together and and shared experiences, which is is a challenge remotely, certainly. It is. Um, just turning back to. Obviously, the creation of your your first business mm. obviously that's first time around, different different era in some ways, yep. different challenges. When it came to uh, co founding Headland in twenty twelve, what were the biggest differences between that that first interaction in terms yes. of raising capital, yep. uh, the advisors you used, what you were looking for, and and yep. what changed? Secretary. And the market even, perhaps. yes, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yes. Well, it's, yes, it's quite interesting. So it, it is is completely different. Um, the I mean back in 1991. Um, the I mean first of all, it, it, I have to say then going back to the madman analogy, the the actually the public relations industry was was a, was a very um, undeveloped industry, and it, it really you know I but the thing going back to your point about having a vision, and I mean it, it was a very simple one, and I you know I thought that mediocrity prevailed in that sector. And so, you know, to create something that somehow just was elevated above that was, uh, you know, was likely to succeed. And I think that was definitely the case. And uh, um, whereas now, you know, I mean, the standards in our industry have, have grown immeasurably. And uh, um, but I think in term, in terms of actually starting Fisherman Hedges, I mean, yeah, it was scary. I mean, we, uh, I think, put up. Half a million quid, and which was then it was quite a lot of money, but and, even now it's a
1: lot of money. And, um,
2: the and yeah, so if it hadn't succeeded, we would have lost our houses, yeah. Mm. Um, so that's really backing yourself, which is really backing yourself, yeah, mm. yeah. And, um, but in, in terms of advisors, I think you would be interested to hear this one because, uh, as I said, then you know, I was very young and, um, I, I kind of needed someone externally. Mm. Um, who kind of uh, you know was, was older than me, wiser, and um, would uh, would give me the confidence to to go for it. And we, I mean, right from the outset, we decided that we wanted to have um, you know good, expensive advisors. So we, I know, we employed Kudos and Librand as then was uh, as our um, accountants, auditors, and. Um, and I know it wasn't. It was actually Lewis Silkin, um, who very, were very dominant in the marketing services sector. Um, but I mean, you know, the the then um, senior partner of uh, Lewis Silkin, you, you probably may know him, a guy called Roger Alexander. Um, you know, he um, he was he was amazing. Uh, he he was the person who really, um, you know, gave me that confidence. And uh, you know, um, and. Uh, and I, you know, rather than, whereas I have to say, I think, you know, the auditor's role was, was, was much more um, um, uh, in the background. And I think, you know, I'm sure this is relevant to your discussion. I mean, it, you know, genuinely then, and I'm sure it's the case now, one was looking for someone, you know, who could talk more than just the legals and, um, you know, was able to talk the language of, uh, of broader business. And, uh, you know, Roger, who, you know, was much older, certainly had that. So I really valued that.
0: And that's about his experience, isn't it? Really. Yeah. So and, you know, clients will say to me, "We don't just hire you because you hopefully know your onions are what you're meant to know your onions about, but it's all the other things you do for other clients exactly. that draw together into, which is what you're saying about Roger.
2: He, he was able to cite so many in examples in which he'd been involved, which uh, was incredibly valuable. And uh, and I have to say, I think you know, in our own business, I mean, you know, so many of our clients, you know, actually. Because obviously they operate in their own narrow sector, you know. Ask us for you know the experiences of our clients in, in a wider sector. So it's one of the benefits of getting bigger and working for across so many different sectors.
1: So it's sharing that wisdom.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah. So w- one interesting contrast, is, as you explained, business number one was all about vision, and and that vision being quality. So yeah. taking quality to the next level. Um, when it came to business number two, so Headland. It was much more around differentiator, finding that point of difference in the market that you were doing differently, and I guess that requires imagination.
2: Yes. So the, I mean, the the one bit that uh, going back to my point about learning from the first experience. So the one bit at uh, Fishburne Hedges that truthfully we never fully cracked was the city and capital markets, and and it was it was that was a result of re- wrong recruitment right at the beginning. Um, and also the fact that, if you remember, you know, I mean, we very much benefited from the sort of the, um, the Blair government, uh, if you remember, you know, which which spent heavily on um, big campaigns. We were the people who did the um, introducing congestion charge in Central London and all those kinds of things, and that wonderful work. And uh, um, but it meant that the, the the capital markets bit just got lost, and that was the bit that certainly I really wanted to um, to create for a number of reasons. Um, Primarily, because from a consultancy point of view, you know, obviously you are dealing with um, chairman of chief execs and it uh, it therefore you know is has that great access in that respect. So that that was that was one of the, the bits that um, was really a sort of a, a guiding principle um, in the creation of Headland. Um, but the other bit, the other bit again, I think you know, and it was a very solid vision. Again, traditionally in, in our market, it's still incredibly. Um, you know, public affairs, public policy, you know, is, is still you know separate from uh, corporate campaigning and um, and um, city and financial, but you know, more and more, we think we thought and we were, I think proved right. Clients wanted to be able to have an agency that you know covered that breadth, but that was in any way that was not in any way hindered by um, internal separate PNL. And that—that that I think was the um, the main thing. And so we—that's really what we set up to do. So we just have a single PNL. There's no there's no internal cross charging all that stuff, and it you know it creates a, a much more um, a benign environment. And uh, and it you know has proved very um, sellable to to clients.
1: A singular business proposition in that context, yeah. in terms of what you're trying to achieve. So, looking back with that experience and probably it's a question for both businesses. Um, Was there a moment where you thought we're on the right track here, we're doing the right thing, we've cracked it? Or or I guess another way, what was the client you most enjoyed if you're able to share with us, winning or servicing or working with?
2: yeah it, well i mean first of all one thing I, I i did learn and perhaps it was naive to think otherwise was that you know when you when you start our sort of business you you know you you tend to get lots of warm noises from uh, incumbent clients but um you know they most don't come across immediately you know and that's completely understandable they look you know for the, 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 the demonstrable success, so I think um, you know the first year or two is always quite scary in that respect, mm. and um, uh, and that that was the case with with, with both creations, and um, um, so yeah, I mean I think um, I mean I don't think for a moment I personally faltered in confidence. It's quite interesting in our business again. It might be relevant to your to your client bases. I mean in our industry, you know, there's still. A lot of consultancies that never get beyond um, a certain level, and, and and I think I don't know whether this is a, a British um, disease or, or risk aversion, but um, I, you know there, there seems to be a, a diffidence about in, in in our business recruiting ahead of having the business, and um, you know that that does require guts, and, and and confidence. Um, but I mean you know i've always pursued that and uh and i think yeah that's why you know we got scale um very quickly and um um but i think it's it's perhaps not the norm
1: yeah i i have to say i love that phrase creations mm. i mean i think it's a mindset that you you view those businesses as something that's an evolving thing something that you've
0: developed and created i think it's a beautiful term yeah and, and picking up on Recruiting ahead of the business coming was interesting because, again, another theme is this sense that if you get the right people, the business will come. You know, exactly. you, you don't, you know, and actually the other way around, which you might think is the logical way around to do, doesn't work so well. Find the right people, the business will always follow.
2: Exactly right. Yeah, and I think that, in, in, interestingly, I mean, in, in many ways, um, that was the the the, um, the trigger for my deciding to to leave Fishman Hedges because so so we sold the business to ultimately Omnicom. Um, U.S. Marketing Services Group very early on um, at, at a very full price, and and actually the relationship with our parent was uh, was a very benign one, but I mean everything changed when the financial crisis hit in two thousand and eight nine. Obviously, you know, remember it hit the U.S. before it hit um, Europe, and you know, uncharacteristically, um, you know, in my, in my experience, the U.S. became incredibly risk averse, and uh, you know, just said regardless of your individual performance, you know. Forget recruitment. This is all about survival, and um, and yeah, I mean it. Um, it really you know hindered um, growth. And of course, you know the the, the brands that, that 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 did best in that crisis were those who continued to you know um, promote themselves because when the upturn came, they were best placed. And I think it was the same in in the consultancy world. You know, if you if there was a break on recruitment, there there was well, a bit like the airlines now. You know, mm. there's there's that Rural. hiatus.
1: And, and in terms of environment, obviously, um, we talked at the beginning of, of this podcast around the current environment and the challenges it, it brings. As a more general view, as a as a business owner and operator, how, how would you describe the UK environment to operate a business now compared to um, the various times under your tenure?
2: Yeah, I mean, as I say, obviously, haven't, I haven't... I mean, you know, they often say that the best time to start a business is, uh, you know, at the lowest point, which is, of course was the case when we started um, Bishman Hedges. But um, the and, and indeed, I I've, again, you probably know more than this to me, but I've always thought that the um, this idea in the UK that for um, for businesses accessing finance is uh, is a challenge. Um, I I always remember again um, back in the depths of the financial crisis, I went along to a, a um, a, a conference with where Vince Cable was, who remember, you remember at the time, he was very much of the view that, you know, accessing finance was the big problem. And um, and it was uh, it was the London Chamber of Commerce, and it was, you know, really quite a big event. And I remember they did a sort of a, a survey of uh, asking everyone, um, you know, if they were having a problem raising money, and 97% no. So, I you know, I, I just, I, I don't know whether it's still the case now, but I mean, certainly in our experience, I mean, truthfully, it has never been an issue. Now, obviously, you know it is a different environment now, and um, interest rates obviously must be uh, an issue. But um, you know, I, I I still think it's probably more the culture to encourage it rather than anything else. And and would
1: you, as a as an entrepreneur, look for investors who want to be part of the business, or was it more a source of capital because of an investment purpose, and you didn't see them as long term partners? And, and have you experienced both?
2: Yes. Um, so so going back to when we sold Fisherman Hedges in 96, um, I mean, then there, di- there just wasn't the, um, the sort of private equity um, um, infrastructure that, that one has now. Mm. So then really um, the only way of, um, of selling a business was a trade sale. Uh, and you know, and it was obviously dominated by um, the big um, marketing services groups, whether it's WPP or Omnicom or whatever. And um, and then um, most of them wanted to buy 100%. Um, that obviously did change, where um, but that that was the case then. And indeed, that's that's what we sold. And, we, and the reason we did it was that um, I mean, actually created Fishman Hedges with. Um, with four other people in different levels, but that we're also very different ages. And so, and, and come back to this actually, but the, you know, one of the things that was quite a driving force of mine was to make sure that our, 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 our own relationships remain good. Going, going back to Roger Alexander, when I, when I started Fish Hedges, I always remember him saying, look, I'm sure Fish Hedges will be a success, but the one thing I can tell you is that project forward two or three years and you won't all be friends. Um, because that was the norm amongst the creation of people businesses, and I, you know, I always remembered that and uh, was very mindful of it, and um, and didn't want that to happen. And indeed, it didn't. And, um, and but I think that was because we created a vehicle for to allow, you know, others to exit. Um, uh, so um, have, I, have I answered your question? Probably not. Well. Yeah,
1: well, certainly you have answered a question. Right. It was a more interesting question, probably <laughs> the one that I asked. But I think I think it's interesting to touch upon that relationship with advisors, legal advisors, professional advisors. And, and obviously, Roger um, has proven to be an influential figure, a great great support. Um, other advisors that have, have had a positive impact or, or indeed, if you're able to share it, negative impact, things that you, you feel you've benefited from.
2: Yes, I mean, I think in 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 the uh, because so so bringing it right up to the almost the present. um, Again, um, with uh, with Headland, um, you know, we we decided that at some stage we had to do something that was going to um, release equity for um, uh, the next generation, and um, we you know we looked at various um, options and decided that going down the um, private equity route. Um, was the best, but this time around, selling a minority stake. Uh, and, um, and that's what we did. And uh, I mean, again, actually, for the, for the transaction, we did use Lewis Silkin, um, who I'd say, you know, again, were extremely good. And they are a good firm, but we, can, the, we our, can edit that out. From, no, I mean in our <laughs> sector they have a you know specialist expertise, and uh, and I'm sure, I'm sure you've done as good a job, but it you know it, we wanted that again, you know the fact they'd done so many. Um, yes, it yeah. was you know a very powerful proposition.
1: Absolutely, and is that a trend that you recognise as well, Bart, in terms of that need to unlock longer term value from businesses and the most successful enterprises needing to sort of regenerate?
0: Yes. Yeah, it is. I just wanted to pick up something at the, the the experience point actually. Um, we're all not answering your questions, Simon. So yeah. Um um you can take a moment to prepare the next one. Mm-hmm. Um but I think I think what has changed in my world over the last 30 years or so has been the sense that um you know, the traditional sense of a family solicitor, you know, that one could take from Victorian musicals or plays has has now Changed or is changing, and I think um, the sorts of clients that we're talking about here—be they, you know, closely owned businesses from by founders or 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 significant businesses that have been multi-generational—are um, are shopping for their advice differently. And I think in my world, the scale of some of those. Um, businesses, clients is very significant, and that has shifted the dial on the way that we provide legal advice. Mm-hmm. So, um, I think that uh, that's only become more apparent in the last few years. But that's that experience point is, which is that if you're if you're if you're not really good at what you do, and you don't do quite a lot of it, you actually don't have the experience that the clients now require across a broad range to really help. Or, or you may not, it's quite likely you won't have. So that, I think, has fundamentally changed. I just want to pick that up. Do you want to ask your question again?
1: <laughs> no, I'm going to ask a different question now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think it, it builds upon your earlier, answer, uh, uh, earlier question, Neil, which was around that unlocking of, of value. In terms of the need to do that, which was to obviously bring through the next generation of, of talent, do you sense a changing appetite? There's there's an awful lot of literature around millennials, generation X, Y, Z, um, being driven by different things than a more traditional sort of ownership model. Are you seeing that in your own business? And do you believe that there are innovative ways to adapt to that? That's a broad generational question. But um,
2: yes, no, I mean it is. It's, it's it's something that I think we you know we uh, we ask ourselves that question the whole time and. Um, the, um, Yeah, I mean, certainly, I think in terms of um, you know, at sort of the graduates we employ, I think they, you know, they're probably their their, their perspective, you know, is different from you know. I mean, I I grew, I grew up in that sort of classic yuppie period, um, which uh, you know, is well portrayed in the lights of the Sloan Ranger Handbook, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, and I'm not I'm not in any way proud of that, but I mean that you know that was very much the Pre- prevailing well, almost morality, and um, it, it uh, you know I think yeah for better it it is different now, um, but um, I think the I think what we are so in our in our world that um, again it's very different from your own where um, it, you know there is still the prospect of of making proper capital um, on, on on sale and. Um, the, so, but there's also in our our, our world uh, an awful lot of um, companies that um, uh, offer equity, but it never is realised, mm. and um, and I you know that inevitably causes um, you know a lot of problems because a lot of uh, expectation which remains unfulfilled, and there's no doubt about it. You know we've we've been quite successful in recruiting quite senior people who've. Um, been very frustrated by that. So the, the point I'm trying to make is that in terms of our own capital structure right from the beginning, you know we very much wanted um, the equity to be potentially very meaningful um, and therefore that you know that does mean that um, that, that one has to have uh, views on um, you know um, primary secondary tertiary sales and the different parts and that and you know I think perhaps we're more open about that than, than many others. So I think the answer to your question is I think you know I think it's yes there is a different psychology but I think it's still wrong to underrate the power of um, of, uh, of building up capital.
1: And how much pressure is there on you as a as a leader of business as chairman of of Headland um, to lead a business that has a purpose? So are you is there a demand from within to? To only act for certain clients, or to be more selective about agendas and issues you promote and pursue, it must be hugely challenging when you are effectively there to curate and uh, promote businesses. Do you have to, and have you started becoming more selective, or were you always? Yeah. Well, first of all,
2: just I mean, when we when we sold Minority State. The deal is that you have to give up your chairmanship because the um, the minority private equity has to uh, put f- put forward his, or, you know, um, although yeah, so so uh, I very willingly gave up that chairmanship. So I'm a, a mere um, founding partner, um, but yeah, and ask your question Simon on that, it, absolutely. And I, I mean, I, I I do think it it's it's a real differentiator um, in, in our business, and um, you know, right from the outset. Um, I, I would like to think that we have become far more um, rigorous, selective in the type of business we take on, and um, and we turn down a lot. Um, and I think that has definitely helped in terms of recruitment, um, particularly um, at you know at the graduate level. There's no question; they're, they're serious questions are asked of us that would just never be asked, um, you know, previously. Um, but I think the the way the way it works is that um, whenever we we feel that you know there's a piece of business that we we're not sure to take on, we meet as a partnership and um, and then discuss it and perhaps vote on it. And almost always, when those meetings take place, the, the decision is taken not to to go ahead. But I think we also have to be very aware of the fact that um, you know it it's very much um, a moving mm-hmm. moral maze. And I mean, you know, certainly six months ago, I think. If we'd had such a meeting and a say a defense organization come along, um, we then would have said no. Um, maybe now, in light of the war, you know, one might um, have a different view. Um, so, I mean, you know, I think one can only do one's best. Yes. Um, but it is definitely, we think, um, a, di- a positive differentiator. And, and,
1: Bart, do you see investor sentiment following a similar? vein, are people being more selective, more directive around businesses or investments they're making?
0: Certainly. Although I pick up your point, Neil, which is I think the the sands shift. So I can, you know, I remember attending one fan manager meeting recently where the six months earlier they'd said they wouldn't invest in defense. (laughs) Now they were buying shares in defense companies. Um, Now, of course, there's a, there's a different, equation there, which is the desire to make money from investments. But it does show that the the backdrop is actually perhaps more complicated. But what is certainly um growing in importance is those the acronym ESG, of course, and clients you know, to vary some some clients are not particularly bothered about it, but some clients are very focused on it. And many fund managers are seeing it as a hugely important area in which to differentiate themselves, um, and are and are developing really quite sophisticated sophisticated esg investment programs I'm, and i'm sure it's here to stay thank you
1: um one more serious question Leon, then we'll get into some mm. questions that tell us a bit more about you to, to round mm. up but just summarizing the hardest thing to talk about which is the future what are the sort of top three challenges do you think for business owners um, Consultants, consultancies in the UK in the next five years.
2: Well, I mean, the the, the easy one, which I'm, you know, obviously, I think all, all professional services firms will probably, uh, um, you know, um, echo, you know, is recruitment, and um, you know, it it uh, it has become, I think, slightly easier um, just recently, which may or may not be a um, a sign, um, but it, um, you know, I mean, it it uh, it really I mean, you know, up until so, yeah, I mean, I think still the case now. I mean, I don't want to appear over um, confident or indeed arrogant, but um, at the moment, in terms of our experience, the, the growth on our business is uh, is more um, dependent on getting the people as opposed to the business. Um, so, so that's um, something that you know we're, we're we're absolutely, and I think you know I'm sure we're, we're certainly not alone on that. Um, having said that, I mean. Uh, <laughs> Again, I mean, you know, professional services uh, has obviously done very well during the, the pandemic. Generally, um, game somewhat unsurprisingly, unsurpri- um, but you know, I think in our own case, um, it, you know, there has to be that 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 question that you know, surely we can't be immune from what's happening in um, the, you know the wider economy and the very likely prospect of um, of a recession. And um, so you know things like um, um, taking on um, additional accommodation, which we are going to go ahead with, um, you know, is uh, uh, you know, and that of course is complicated again by not just um, concerns about the economy, but I mean, again, you know, how the whole future between um, working from home and um, working in the office is is going to um, develop. Um, So that that that's another issue, and. I think the—I I, mean—in terms of um, the sort of belief in what we do, I—I I, I can't see that. I mean, it—you it, know—all the evidence is that in terms of the kind of things we do. I mean, it, you know, it really has gone further and further up the um, the the boardroom agenda. And you know we're certainly seeing no signs of that changing. And I mean, gosh, it's so different from. I mean, yeah. When I started off, I always remember, you know, one of my first. I handled the deal, and um, I mean, then the so-called merchant banks were absolutely in control, and uh, you know they took over the business when there was a corporate action. And I thought, blimey,
1: <laughs> they're the glory days. They were yeah. the glory days, yeah. exactly. Yeah.
2: But I mean, it gosh, hasn't, hasn't it changed? And the, you know, in terms of uh, you know around that boardroom table, it, it you know it really is equal participation, and uh, and I I I think that's incredibly gratifying, and um, and I can't see that changing. So I'm not sure I've, I've even got a third one properly, which is which is actually a very positive
1: way to win that conversation thank you very much neil so just four quick fire questions Mm. which hopefully will be quite light-hearted so first of all um advice you'd give your 20 year old self
2: yeah no i did have a quick thing about this i mean it's an obvious one and um i I think it goes back to um this whole point about um keeping work in in its rightful sort of um perspective and context um i mean you know one of the things i always i mean i i'm Huge believer in despite everything that's happening, that you know the world does get better. I mean, and it and it does. I mean, sorry if you look at the figures in so many across so many criteria, that is the case. Um, and I, you know, one of the, one of the things I often cite is um, is paternity leave as a, as one just small micro example of that, because you know when 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 we had our children. I literally, um, you know, they were very, both very corporate babies. They were born in the middle of the night. So, I mean, I, you know, I just, I went home normal time and was in the office the following morning and that was it. And you'd thought nothing of it. And I mean, it, it clearly was so wrong. And, um, you know, and I think, you know, today where, you know, proper paternity leave is is, is given, I think that's a, a um, you know, wonderful thing. And I, you know, I mean, it's not, it's not full answer to your question, but I think, you know, I wish such things had existed um, then.
1: Well, it's, it's a positive
2: way to look at a regret, I guess, which is um, absolutely
1: the case. Um, your favourite book?
2: Favourite book uh, is is quite easy. I mean, as an English literature graduate, I always uh, loved the uh, the Victorian novel, and I still think George Eliot's Middlemarch is... Uh, uh, I, I did reread it in my year off before creating a co-creating a headland and uh you know it's it's a really good reminder that you know people talk about we're living through a period of um you know extraordinary change and you know yes we are but I would argue it's not nothing compared with uh, with that period in terms of industrialization, railways and everything else. So it's a good reminder of that.
1: Fantastic. Um who's your hero?
2: Yeah I I I'm a great huge Beatles fan. And so it, it has to be Paul McCartney, and um, I think it's extraordinary the way he's conducted him. I mean, you know, apart from being a, um, a musical genius, um, I think just the way in which he's conducted himself throughout, you know, all, so many decades. Um, you know, I think a, a lesser person just could not have um, managed it. I mean, just I, I hope you did watch the uh, the, Glastonbury the performance at Glastonbury, Superb, which I it? thought was just awesome. Yeah. You know, yeah. almost history being made. But you know, funny enough, that going on this point about sort of, well, like today, this this idea of talking to a crowd of a hundred thousand, yet as, as if the, you know, you're just talking to one person. And he's one of the few people in in rock concerts who says meaningful things between each track, mm-hmm. rather than just "hello, Glastonbury."
1: Yeah, that's fantastic. And who would play the role of? Neil Hedges well, in the film happy. about. I'd be him.
2: very happy if Hugh Grant were to uh, uh, accept the uh, the offer. But I think it's it's, it's an for interesting- those for
1: those who haven't met Neil, you can see that instantly. Well, <laughs> that's just
2: very funny. But the the um, no, I, it's interesting you raise that question though because it, it does it's is you know the, the portrayal of business in film you know is 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 a very poor one. And I don't know if, if you're regular arch archers listeners, but the um you know. Any business person in the archers is, is always represented as, uh, you know, a cad or whatever, and uh, and, I, and it's you know now I know you know the argument is that well if it weren't that you know actually a lot of business is very boring and it's um, but I think it, uh, it it does have an impact on the way in which um, you know people see uh, what we do.
1: So the suave Hugh Grant would uh, help turn the tide back in favour of good good solid business people. And
2: he is a good businessman himself, actually. He is. You know, he's a yeah.
1: <laughs> successful man. Um, thank you ever so much, Neil. I mean, it was fascinating conversation to be part of. I, I think that the themes from it in terms of creativity and vision and the need to, to back oneself, um, the increasing need to have a demonstrable purpose and that, that long-term thinking, the longevity and succeeding in business now and for the generation behind were, were fantastic perspectives. And I love the sense of optimism that you brought to it. So I, I found it completely fascinating. Bart?
0: Much the same, no, absolutely. And um, wonderful insights into into the creation of your business. And I, I love the moment to reflect on family life and how you might've done that differently, which I think, um, I think it's different, different and difficult actually, because I think as you get older, you sometimes forget how hard you had to work to be successful when you were younger. Mm. Um, and so the perspective comes from a, you look at that perspective is coming from a different place, but it's a fascinating insight. And the, the entire interview was wonderful. Thank you very much indeed. Pleasure. I enjoyed it.
1: Well, thank you, Neil. Um, thank you, Bart. Thank uh, you, Simon. And thank you for everyone who's listened. And I hope you've enjoyed it. And uh, until the next client conversation, goodbye.